DJ Thomas, and you're listening to Frequency Interrupted. Sam Coonert, what's up, man? What's happening, man? Thank you so much for having me, DJ. Man, thanks for coming on. So I know we've been connected uh, now for probably a little over a year, and we're just now getting, you know, to get this thing going. But um, just to, you know, let everyone know, kind of my connection with you was through Barbie Thomas, who I've had on the show a couple of times, who's amazing, and her connection with uh, Nubability and what you guys are doing. Just wanted to get you on to kind of share your story and just spread the word, man. Absolutely, man. Bar- Barbie is awesome. She has been with us. I want to say since the second camp. So that'd be from 2013 till now. Uh, she served in board member roles. She's been a huge supporter of nobility financially. Um, she even brought a camp into our own backyard where we call it our fitness unarmed camp. Um, and it's for all kids who are missing both arms. And it's uh, it's literally she kicks them. She kicks their butts. So, <laughs> you know, that they, they, they go through the ringer. She doesn't take it easy on them. But it's, yeah. it's an amazing it's an amazing thing. Um, an amazing relationship. I consider Barbie one of my closest friends. She's she's just an awesome human being. Yeah, man. She's uh, I've only got to speak to her a couple of times, but you know, we've kept in touch this whole time and she's amazing. But let's let's talk about you, man. So first off, um the audience, you know, is kind of really broad and probably doesn't know, you know, what we're gonna get into, but let's start with, you know, your story. Absolutely, man. So I was born and raised in a small town here in Southern Illinois called Ducoin, Illinois, a uh, town of 6,500 people, although I've never seen that many. Um, <laughs> we've, got, we've got three stoplights and about a handful of restaurant opportunities, but man, it, it, it's home and I love it. And the one thing about Ducoin is it is a sports town. You know, you are raised to play. You are raised to play sports. And so when I was born in 92, missing my left hand, you know, that, that was immediately put into question. Everybody was, you know, he's never going to be able to play at the next level. And I would have to hear that from the time I was born uh, all the way up to middle school, even into high school. Uh, you know, I, I would hear he's not good enough to play. Uh, but, man, I fell in love with the sports out of the womb. I, and when I say out the womb, I mean, I was two years old watching Jim Abbott pitch a no-hitter on my dad's lap, <laughs> sitting there with a, a gallon of cho- uh, chocolate milk, just sitting there on his on his lap, drinking out the bottles, like, you know, just like you're supposed to, yeah. um, and, and watching baseball and just falling in love with it every sport, but man, I'll never forget watching baseball. Like, even though I was two years old, I have that memory of sitting there, which is kind of, kind of cool. Cause I know a lot of people can't remember until they're four and it's very rare that people can remember all the way back to age two. And I actually, I actually got that blessing where I can remember those times of sitting on his lap and watching Jim Abbott and seeing this guy who's out there, who's missing the same, um, has the same difference as me, just kind of, if you were to mirror me, uh, he was missing his right hand where I'm missing my left and seeing this guy go out there and play at the highest level of sports and not just, you know, out there and everybody's like, Oh my gosh, you know, he has one hand, no out there beating people, you know, yeah. throw, uh, throwing BBs past people and, yeah. and, and killing it. And it gave me the confidence to continue to push and pushing through sports. And so as I grew up, you know, my, my uh, love for the game grew, you know, it, it grew to, to points where I, I was on a travel team from the time I was four years old um, until I was, until I was about 12. And what changed was, you know, one, I have two brothers, so they both played sports uh, and there wasn't as much time to devote to the travel, but there was also uh, a dynamic that changed as I got older every year I'd hear, you know, you're not good enough to play. 
And I refused to listen to that. And so as I came into middle school where you can finally represent your school, you know, I was excited. I'm like, all right, let's do this. Let's go try out for the school team. I've, I've been competing against everybody on the school team all summer long and, you know, doing well, like, you know, pitching well, hitting well. I knew there was no way that I wasn't going to make that team, but I'm a sixth grader and the teams for mainly seventh and eighth graders, you know, there's a handful of sixth graders making. (laughs) So I go try out and I get cut and, you know, it was heartbreaking, but I was like, man, I'm a sixth grader. It's time to get back to work. You know, let's, let's, let's put in the work. Let's make this happen. Go out again for my seventh grade year and I get cut. And now this one hurts. I was like, I had one of the best tryouts I've ever done. Like, why, why am I being cut now? I don't understand. I'm definitely better than the sixth graders that made it. I know that I've competed better with these seventh graders, especially some of the ones who made this team and these eighth graders, I've struck them out over the summer. I, I don't understand. And so I went home and, uh, you know, I was frustrated, but I was like, you know what? I'm not going to let this get me down. You know, I'm going to keep going. You know, when life hands you obstacles, you know, you're not supposed to look at them as walls, but look at them as steps to success, right? Every, every failure is a success or every failure is a step. And I was like, you know, I'm going to keep climbing. So I I went home, immediately jumped out in the backyard and started throwing, started hitting, started, you know, getting back ready and did that for pretty well a year straight. Tryouts come around again, had the best tryout ever. No way these guys are cutting me, right? There this is eighth grade, right? Eighth, eighth grade. grade. Right. Yep, eighth grade. There's no way they're cutting me. You know, I'm an eighth grader. I'm one of the harder throwers in the town. I had played probably the best summer ball season I had played all year, and I was one of the main pitchers. There's no way they're cutting me. So I go out and have this tryout, and I knew, you know, it was one of those things like when you put on a good show, you know it, and you're yeah. like, all right. I'm I'm okay. Well, that night it was what's called our soap game, where everybody get gives a bar of soap for the foot to go watch the football team basically scrimmage against each other before the real game starts. Okay. And so we're like, the coach goes, we're gonna post the final roster up on the middle school doors about an hour before the soap game. So everybody who's going in town for soap game can go stop by the doors and see who's made the team. I'm pumped, right? I know, I know this is happening. And so I was like, mom, you got to take me. And, you know, she's like running behind because my mom doesn't really have a, have a sense of time sometimes. She's <laughs> like, I'm like, I'm like, mom, you got to take me. I was like, we got to go see, I, you know, I, I, I want to go see my name on this board. And so she rushes me up to the, up to the middle school, which is about a 15 minute drive. Cause I, I live outside of town and uh, I go up to the door and there's this list and I'm, I'm excited, right? So like, I can't even see straight, man. I'm just like, here it is here. You know, this is, this is the chance. And so I go down the list and I, I look down the list once and I'm like, oh, I can see it, but you know what? You know, I'm just excited. I need to slow down, calm down, take a deep breath, find your name. Went down it again. Didn't see it. And I was like, this ain't right. Went down it again. Nothing immediately, dude, my, my heart sunk. I was like, how is this possible? You know, what's going on? And then I, I ended up going home and I remember hearing from a couple parents, the coach just wasn't confident in me because of my difference. And so he cut me, Man, he, he, he didn't believe in it. He didn't give me a chance to really show it. And it just, man, it, it, it hurt. It did. You know, it was one of those things that really hurt, but I'm very thankful that I have an amazing, uh, amazing mother who is honestly an angel on this earth and started reading scripture to me. And, you know, at that time in my life, 
I had always been somebody who had, you know, really trusted and believed in God and felt like God, you know, made me this way for a reason. Yeah. Um, after dealing with bullying for years, that's what it took was for me to finally realize I was created, you know, perfectly in his image and that I could do anything through him who strengthens me. But it was when my mom read that verse to me, Philippians 4.13, that it really sunk in. It's like, okay, so I'm not going to let this coach tell me what I can do. I'm not going to let the let my teammates tell me. I'm not going to let competitors tell me what I can do because the only person who can define what I'm capable of is myself and God. And his ceiling for me is way higher than mine. And so I immediately was like, all right, it's time to get back to work. I'm going to be so good that there is no way the high school coach can cut me whenever I try out my freshman year. So I did, man. I spent, man, hours after hours, like I would get home from school and stack beer bottles or, or, or soda bottles up on the dumpster and practice every pitch. And I wouldn't go in until I knocked them down in a row. Like I was like, I'm going to make this, I'm going to be the most accurate pitcher new coins ever seen. I'm going to, you know, I had all these, all these goals set in mind. Um, to basically be the kid that there's no way possible somebody could cut him again. And this continued for about a year. Uh, tryouts came around again, had a great tryout, got to go out and throw. And I was one of the harder throwers on the team. Everything was going great. And we get, we get the lineup card posted on the door and my name's there. Nice. And I'm like, man, finally, you know, I made it. Now, as freshman, you play probably roughly 20, 25 games, somewhere in there. Um, and I was in the pitching rotation. And I thought, you know, whenever you're in the pitching rotation, that it's going to rotate to you, you know, throughout the season. Right. It rotated to me three times that year. In those three games that it rotated to me, it was to the teams that we were supposed to be beat by. Right. They were the teams that had 10 run ruled us the year before okay. or the or the bigger or the bigger schools that, you know, intimidated others. And I'll never forget the, fir the first game was against Nashville, Illinois, Nashville High School. Corn fed farm boys hop off of the bus, look like they could hit a, you know, dip in the lip, look like they could hit a ball <laughs> country mile, you know. Um, and you can tell that my team's afraid. And I was like. What, you know, what's going on? And, and then my coach comes up and he goes, Cooner, you're going to throw today. It's like, all right, you know, awesome. So I started going to warm up and, it's, you know, it's, everything's feeling good. My slider's moving well. Fastball's got a good zip to it. It's got a nice little tail and every, everything's just on the mark. I know that, you know, I'm locked in. All of a sudden, I overhear that coach talking to the assistant coach. Well, we might as well throw Cooner at him. We're going to lose anyway. Oh. And I was like, you know, Immediately, that coach made this list. You know, I have this list in my head of people who I'm going to prove wrong. Immediately, yeah. you know, he made that list. And because what that coach hadn't seen is the hours and hours of preparation and practice so that whenever I took that mound, it was my mound. You know, I had, I had that confidence, like, this is where I'm meant to be. And when somebody steps into the box with me, they don't deserve to be there because they haven't worked as hard as me. You know, right. I was always determined to be the hardest worker in the room, no matter where I went. And so I got up on the mound and had a one, two, three inning. First inning, we scored scored one run. And then that was it. It was one run for me to work with from the first inning all the way to the seventh. Mm. I did it. I threw a shutout. Very first, really? very first game. Yeah, I threw Man. a shutout. And uh, 
you know, I thought that I had earned the coach's respect. You know, I thought I had earned my, you know, I thought I had earned my spot. I thought I was going to start to get pitching a little bit more. And again, he threw me against two other teams that we were guaranteed to get beat by. And I beat them with very minimal help um, on the scoreboard. You know, obviously they were fielding behind me, but right. the, the scoreboard, you know, that, 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 that adds up. And I couldn't understand it, but I was like, you know, I'm just gonna have to keep working harder. You know, that, that was kind of my mentality was not to accept failure, but to work through it, you know, not, not to accept it as um, people looking down on me or, or uh, telling me what I'm capable of, but knowing I can do it and knowing that I'm just going to have to work harder, work two times as hard uh, to get on the field and three times as hard to surpass my competitors. That, that was kind of my mentality. And so as I, as I went on, into my sophomore year, I thought, you know, I'd earned the respect. I'm, I'm going to get more pitching time. And it was the same thing as my freshman year. I pitched in three games against teams that we were guaranteed to get beat by and beat them. Coming into junior year of baseball, I'm finally, you know, I'm in the rotation as a reliever. Um, it was pretty certain that I was going to be throwing in game scenarios where we needed a really good arm. And I was throwing the ball well. I was throwing the ball, you know, about 83, 80, 83 to 85 miles per hour as a junior. So a lot of room to improve by senior year, you know. And I uh, finally started having, you know, these visions of me actually playing college ball. You know, I had dreams of playing college baseball, uh, but finally started having these visions of it and seeing it come to fruition through my skill level. But I wanted to know what I needed to do to get there. Our pitching coach at the time, who was also my freshman baseball coach, um, I went up to him and I said, coach, what do I need to do to get to college? Like, how, how do, what do I need to improve on? You know, what, what do I need to focus on? You know, as a coach, because I've been a college baseball coach, I coached college baseball for two years as a strength conditioning and pitching coach. When your player comes to you, you have, you have a certain obligation that is to career goals and help them to, to achieve what they strive to do, right? Yeah. So you even if they're not there yet, you give them some direction, which is what I was expecting from this conversation. Instead, what I got was, well, Sammy, you throw the ball pretty hard, but there's not very many one-handed baseball players in college baseball. And I think you should just focus on these last four, these last year. And hearing that, you know, at first it hurts, but immediately it's like that mentality comes back. It's like, yeah. okay, time to prove this person wrong. And so I went out and I worked twice, like as hard as I ever did. I even gave up basketball. I was a three sport athlete all throughout. Wait, high school. hold on, hold on. We didn't even talk about that. We just talked no. about baseball the whole time. Yeah, so yeah, you're my bad. basketball and what else? Oh. Yeah, I played basketball and football. So oh, okay, that. okay. I was a I was a wide receiver in football because why not, right? You got right, one yeah. hand, you gotta play, you gotta play the position that uh yeah. people don't expect you to. And then basketball, I was a center mainly because I'm six five and I was the tallest kid in the school. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, you, you gotta be strong there and, and prep there. But I was playing three sports at the time and uh you know, I loved basketball, but man, baseball, it was just everything to me to the point where I gave it up my senior year going into my senior year, I knew that I was going to give it up to focus on this opportunity to play college. And so that summer I played on a Legion team going up summer leading up to senior year, played on a Legion team, played against several teams, pitched really, really well. 
Uh, had a couple colleges that were at the games whenever I was pitching. A couple JUCOs actually reached out and you know said, "Hey, you know we'd be interested in you coming and trying out for us." You know, and and that's great. You know, walk on is awesome, and and I have so much respect for walk ons. But man, there was something in me that was just so stubborn. I was like, "I want a four year school. Yeah, I want a four year school to offer me. I don't care if it's D one, D two, D three. I want a four year school to offer me." Well, football season gets over, um, and I get a phone call. It's from Greenville University. It was Greenville College at the time, and now it's Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois, D3 school. Coach says, hey, I've been looking at – we saw you play over the summer. We've been looking at your stats. We've been talking to your coach. We would love for you to come and take a visit of our school. Now, this is the first time somebody's offered me you know, a true visit, and I'm like – Absolutely. You know, I, I want to, I want to go, you know, this is, this is my time to, to attempt to visit a school. And so we go on this school visit and everybody knows that whenever you go on these school visits, if your meeting ends with meeting the head coach, that you're probably going to get an offer, right? They have no agenda for me leading up to it or anything that I know of that. I just know that I'm taking a tour. So I go to school and, and we take the tour and, uh, man, I'm loving this school. I love, I love the facility. Uh, I love the Christian aspect of the school. Um, I'm loving the coaches that I'm talking to the assistants. And then I, we get to go see the, the actual baseball facilities. And I'm like, man, I can just see myself already. I can see myself in the bullpen. You know, I'm just getting amped up. I'm like, this is awesome. And then the pitching coach goes, Hey, how much time do you have? I was like, and I'm here until you tell me to go home. And he goes, well, I, we want you to meet with the head coach um, after after this next part. And I was like, okay, yeah, let's do it. And so we go sit down and I'm sitting in the head coach's office and he walks in and, you know, you know that feeling like whenever you're a kid and you know you did something and you fit and your parents know you did something, but they're trying to get you to admit to it. So they yeah. walk in, they pull the close the chair up to you and they kind of cross their arms and just stare at you <laughs> yeah. for a short minute. I, that's this coach does exactly that. And you know, I love this coach. He was an amazing guy. But uh at, at that time he he pulls it up to me, he goes, I'm just gonna be honest with you. He said, You are the type of leader that we look for in this program. You're the type of leader that we want in this program. You're the type of leader that we that we strive to have on our team. But I'm not sure if you're physically able of playing at this level. He hmm. said, I'm not telling you no. He said, but I'm going to tell you that we're going to continue to watch. He said, I want to see what you do in your senior season. Okay. And I was like, you know, yes, yes, sir. I understand. You know, in my head, I'm like, well, why'd you bring me here? You know, you brought me here just to tell me I couldn't play. Like, you know, what, what, what's going on? And, you know, immediately, you know, you start to get gutted, but I'm like, you know, in my head, immediately this thought comes to my head. Well, coach, I'm going to see you in the spring because I'm going to be on this team. Yes. Yeah. This, this is, this is the school that I'm, I'm going to play for. And so I go and um, have a great senior season, uh, lead the team in saves, uh, was in the top three pitchers and, and wins, you know, having a great season when our team went to state. Um, and then the week before the state tournament, I get a call. It's the Greenville pitching coach. Hey, son, uh, we would we would really love to have you over here on our, on our team. What do you think about being a Greenville Panther? I said, sir, I was ready to be a Greenville Panther in the fall when you guys had me over for a visit. <laughs> 
He said, okay, here's what I want you to do. He said, I want you to get together your parents, get, get, you know, whoever your coaches, whoever you want in your signing photo. And we want to do kind of like a, you know, you signing on to the team. We want to do a whole photo news release, everything like that. So that everybody knows you're on our team. Awesome. He said, I want you to pick the most memorable people that you, you want in that photo. I said, yeah, no problem. So, you know, I had to have my, my head coach for the varsity baseball team. You know, he believed in me. Yeah. I wanted to have my um, student counselor, uh, Mr. Campbell, who was also our athletic director. Uh, God rest his soul. He, you know, he, he gave me um, every opportunity whenever I was uh, ex- experiencing bullying to really just kind of vent to somebody. He was, he was a great guy. And then he also um, wrote several letters of recommendation for me. Just, you know, just somebody who invested in me. So I was like, I got to have Mr. Campbell in this. Right. Now I was like, got to have mom and dad. You can't yeah, get not have mom and dad. You yeah. know, they're, they're, they're the ones who, who uh, not only, you know, invested in me financially, but invested in me spiritually and, and, you know, took me to all, all of the, all of the camps, all of the uh, workouts, everything that I needed to do to get to the point where I'm at. Then I got to thinking, I need one more person in this, in this photo. I, I think I'm going to ask my freshman, my freshman baseball coach. And the reason I asked my freshman baseball coach, who was that pitching coach who told me that I'd never be able to play yeah. college baseball is so he knew that I proved <laughs> him wrong. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He, he, he knew that, that I had proven him wrong and that I had outworked, outworked what he thought I could get to. And that I had made this goal of playing college baseball a reality, even without him. And we went and took the photo and, you know, I gave him a copy of it and it was just, you know, to me, that was like a crowning achievement. You know, yeah. I, I made it, I made it to this college level and, one thing that came from this that I didn't expect was an ego. Ah. Um, you know, I had been a very humble guy growing up. I, I, I had always been a hard worker, um, always gave God the credit where God, it, you know, where it was due, uh, accepted Jesus into my life at a very, very young age. Uh, I think age five, I was baptized in my swimming pool at my parents' house. And, you know, I, I just moved forward. And as I got, that offer. And as I finally signed to make this goal happen, I got this mentality of it was all me and it was all me who made this happen. It was all me who got this, um, got this opportunity to play college baseball. It was me who put in the work, you know, I had this, it was me attitude. And I started drifting away from God and it wasn't that I stopped believing in him. I knew he was there. I knew um, that God existed. It was almost like I just got on this path of, well, I'm going to be forgiven anyway, so I'm just going to do this. Yeah. And I started acting in ways that, you know, I never thought I would. Um, I started uh, sleeping around. I, I, you know, I started partying hard. Um, basically, this, doing is everything. this is happening in college too, right? Yeah, this Which is, is something this, is, this easily, you know, it happens easily in, in that, you know, just, you know, just to put that out there, it does exactly. it tend to happen that way too, you know. Exactly, exactly. This And this is happening, you know, into senior year, into college, yeah. um, fall, of, fall of my freshman year of college, you know, everything is going right for me, you know, having fun, 
playing baseball, uh, just completed the uh, insanity workout, the insanity asylum edition. So that, that intense insanity yeah. workout. Yeah. Uh, so I was in the best shape of my life. Everything I was forgot about right. that, dude. That's, that's throwback <laughs> right there. Heck yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was Sean T, man. Yeah, Sean, Sean T. T, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, man, I, I remember when I completed it, dude, I was, you know, I had this, I had to take a shirtless photo and post it online for, you know, everybody to see. You know, I had that type of mentality going. And I remember getting a call from my granddad the day after I completed, um, our, our, my freshman, uh, fall season. And he said, Hey boy, you want to go to the world series? I'm like, what are you serious? I'm like, yeah, he's like, he's like, well, granddaddy got some tickets to go see the Cardinals play the Rangers for game six, of the world series. If you want to go, do you have class? I said, I will skip, you know? <laughs> I, was like, I will skip class practice, whatever I need to do to go to this game. And he said, all right, well, just, you know, meet me there. You know, St. Louis is about 35, 40 minutes from Greenville. So I, I drive up there. Granddaddy's got us a hotel room, so I don't have to, you know, rush back after the game or anything. Go to the game. It's the most amazing experience ever. Like everything is going right in my life right now. Like the Cardinals come back from, you know, come back from behind, tie it up and then uh, win it in extra innings off of a, on a walk-off, you know, it was everything that every baseball player would want, especially for their team, you know, to watch the Cardinals do that. And game seven is in St. Louis the next night and they're playing for the ring. You know, they're playing against yeah. uh, the Texas Rangers and I'm sitting in the, in the, in the uh, dorm commissary um, with a couple of my, a couple of my teammates and just some of the other schoolmates. And we're sitting there and we're watching this game. We're watching this game. And I go, man, Screw this. Let's go. It's like, let's go. This is 35 minutes. You know, they're, they're destroying the Rangers. Yeah. Let's go. Let's get on the road. We'll get there in plenty of time. You know, we'll be able to see the last few innings. And so we did. And to our surprise, there's no security at the gate. There, you know, there's, there's, there's doors open. So we just walk in onto the platform and we're watching the world, like the last yeah. few outs of the world series. And it was the greatest time ever. I mean, we as soon as the game ended, the streets erupted. People were uh, fender bendering each other, yelling "Go Cardinals!" instead of cussing each other out. <laughs> cops, cops were uh, pouring what was probably minors, uh, you know, some alcohol punch and stuff. I mean, it was it was literally like a scene out of a movie. Like it was it was just crazy. And I just got you know, I thought, man, this is amazing. Uh, went back to my dorm. Woke up the next day and I didn't feel too good. I was like, man, I didn't drink that night. So I knew it wasn't like I was hungover or anything. I was like, what's, what's going on? So I laid there a little bit longer, you know, the feeling just got worse. And I was like, all right, I'm gonna go back to sleep. So I go back to sleep, ended up skipping all my classes that day, sleeping through them and woke up the next, you know, the next time, probably about, I guess it's probably five in the evening. And I go to pick my head up and, I, and, and everything was super dizzy. I was like, what is going on? I've never experienced anything like it. So I swing my, swing my legs out and try to stand up and immediately start to fall back down. And I'm just super, super dizzy. Uh, don't really have to throw up. Don't know what's going on. Check my temperature. It feels, it feels pretty hot. You know, like just the head, hand to head. And yeah. of course I didn't bring a thermometer. You know, I'm a college kid. <laughs> yeah. why, why, why would I invest in one of those? 
Well, my roommate, uh, who was my catcher at the time, he was one of those kids who invested in everything. He had everything. Like he probably had a, a whole pharmacy in his, in his room, you know? And, uh, he goes and took my temperature and he's like, man, you, sh- you need to call somebody. And it was like 102. And so I, I called my mom, you know, why, why not? That's, that's my yeah. mama, you know, this school's about an hour and a half away from home. So she'll be able to tell me what to do. Um, she calls me, said, what's going on? Well, I can't stand up. And when I do stand up, I get super dizzy. Um, I feel terrible. I feel nauseous, but I haven't thrown up yet. Um, what should I do? She's like, well, what's your temperature? And I and told her, you know, it's 102 degrees. She said, okay, I'm going to come get you. And I said, oh, okay. You know, no, you don't argue with mama. When mama tells you she's coming to get you. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> and, and so she drove an hour and a half, comes pick me up from the dorm. Drove me back, left my truck in Greenville, uh, drove me back to my my parents' house, put me down in the basement in the dark room, and I just lay, laid down there. Woke up the next morning, and I felt normal. You know, I got up, had food with my family, wasn't running a fever. The nausea was, was pretty well gone, and I was just kind of tired. And so she's like, why don't you, you know, take one more night with us here, you know, enjoy one more night of uh, home-cooked meals and go back to school in the morning. That sounds like a great plan, you know. I didn't like school anyway, so so, <laughs> so you know, I'd stay stay home, get some of Mama's cooking one more night. Absolutely, yeah, heck yeah. So I go wake up the next morning. I can't pick my head up off the pillow. I was so weak. Mom came back down, and she she immediately saw something was wrong because my skin was jaundiced, and I was just like unable to move. So she called my dad home from work at the bank and said, "Hey." You need to come get your son. I can't get him up off the couch. He's not able to stand up. He's not very talkative. I think we need to take, he's running a high fever. We need to take him to the emergency room. My dad comes home and they drive us to you know, what's known as the hospital to go to whenever you, you know, have to have to have treatment. So it's like, you know, about 30 minutes away from home in in Carbondale. And he comes home, he throws me over his shoulder like a sack of potatoes. Uh, at this time, I'm, you know, 6'5", 225 pounds. I was in like the <laughs> yeah. best shape of my life. But yeah. dad just slings me over his shoulder because he was born and raised a farm boy. Yeah. Um, slings me over his shoulder like a bag of dog feed and, throw, and throws me in the car and drives me up to Carbondale. We get into the ER um, and they start, you know, doing your vitals and everything. And they, they look at me and they're like, this boy has a dangerously enlarged liver and spleen you know, we just did some tests on him. He's super dehydrated. We need to get him hooked up to some IVs and we need to hospitalize him immediately. And so they go and they hospitalize me. And that was the first of seven days at that hospital. Uh, in those seven days, I ran fevers of up to 106 degrees. I had hallucinations. I couldn't stand. And I had already lost, let's see, I think I lost a total of 20 pounds in that, in that week. Um, and they couldn't figure out what was going on with me. They were treating me for tick-borne illnesses. They were treating me for pretty well everything, but nothing was nothing was making it better. And the one, you know, the one symptom that I remember most was these violent chills. Like, you know, I've had chills with with fevers before. This was nothing like that. It honestly felt like somebody was standing on top of me holding on to my shoulders and literally just shaking the life out of me. Like I just could 
feel like like nothing was stopping it. I couldn't, it was these tremors that I couldn't believe were happening. They decided they're going to do a lymph node biopsy and see what's going on. Cause my lymph nodes were all swollen. They're like, let's, you know, let's, let's send one off to Mayo clinic, um, St. Jude and all these other, all these other hospitals around the nation. Let's see what's going on with them. See if there's anything that they can find. And so they do the lymph node biopsy. They send it off. And they're like, you know, we can't do anything more for him here. Let's get him a room up at St. Louis University where he can see the university doctors. And and they have a, a doctor up there who's a liver specialist named Dr. Kevin Bacon. Uh, and we would love for him to get in front of Dr. Bacon and let Dr. Bacon uh, analyze your son because uh, we've never seen anything like this. They send me off to SLU in an ambulance. We get up to SLU and we get up to the room. And my phone or my mom's phone rings. She answers it and she hits her knees crying. I didn't know what was going on at that time. You know, that it's, this was completely new to me. I was just getting up into the room. And then she, whis- she whispers to my dad. And, you know, I had never seen my dad emotional. I, you know, my dad was the guy who was, you know, the rock. You know, he was the one who would not show you. He wouldn't show you if you made him mad. He wouldn't show you, you know, if if he was upset. You know, you would not see his emotion um, to a complete stranger. You know, and there's a doctor in this room, and my dad hits his knees, and he's he's just overcome with emotion. So I know that this phone call was not good. What the phone call was was the doctor who had performed the biopsy called my mom and said, Jana. What I'm going to tell you is going to be super scary. And I want you to fight for every diagnosis. I want you to fight until every single doctor at St. Louis University has seen Sam and has disproved this. Your son has what one in two people in the world are diagnosed with every year, which is acute, multicentric, multilymphatic Castleman's disease, which is not cancer. But at that time in 2011, had a 90% fatality rate within a few weeks to a few months of being diagnosed. And Man, you said, no, what are the, you said one and two, that's not, it's one in, or one of two people diagnosed okay. in, okay, I think it. it's in the world, I think in United States, in the US okay, at that you. time. Yeah. And it was such a rare disease that for St. Jude and Mayo Clinic to come back with that same was, crazy right like this is a rare diagnosis how how is this you know two different ones so i get to when i get to the hospital and they they get that diagnosis in and all of a sudden i am the most interesting patient at st louis university yeah i have every single doctor coming in and poking and prodding me like i'm texas barbecue man i mean (laughs) it was insane i had anything from a colonoscopy to to you know to (laughs) to almost like an acupuncture type deal. Like, you know, it was just insane. And the fevers weren't stopping. uh, The chills weren't stopping. It it was progressively getting worse. By this time, I'm already down 30 pounds. Um, It's just, it's getting crazy. So the doctors all running tests and they can't figure it out. You know, they just, they just can't come up with what's going on. And all my numbers are going in the wrong way, right? My, my liver's failing. Everything, everything is going in the wrong way. 
um, to the point where the course of the next couple of days, I have preachers, I have family members, I have friends, I have classmates, everybody's coming and visiting me basically for a final visit. Yeah. You know, the, the, the preachers are coming to make sure that my soul is okay. Mm-hmm. And man, I remember laying there in bed. I think it was probably night 12 or yeah, night 12 of being in that hospital. And I really started reflecting on my life. I started reflecting on who I had become. I started reflecting on the ego start reflecting on the people who I, you know, I had hurt and not, you know, not shown remorse and really started evaluating my life in whole. And immediately I asked myself, do you think if you died right now that you would go to heaven? And my answer to myself was, I don't know. Yeah. Which is not what you want your answer to be, right? If you, if you, well, not if you're on that last <laughs> leg, you know what I mean? Exactly. You, you, you <clears throat> want to know where you're going. And so immediately I started thinking, you know, what can I do to make this right? You know, I'm too weak to talk on the phone, but mom handed me my phone and I can text. So I started texting every single person who I had felt I'd done wrong. Like I probably sent out 50 or more texts that day, whether it was girls, um, you know, friends, uh, competitors, coaches, you know, whoever I thought I had done wrong to, I apologized to on that night in the text. To my surprise, every text message that I sent, I got a reply within, you know, 30 minutes from that person forgiving me. Yeah. To me, that was super powerful. I mean, it, it was, it was like, okay, you know, I'm forgiven by them. Then I laid there a little bit longer and I was like, there's somebody else I need to ask forgiveness for and somebody else who I need to talk to. And I haven't talked to him since I was, you know, in junior high, you know, I hadn't talked to him since, uh, since I was cut from baseball. I hadn't talked to him since, um, I first heard that I was going to sign for college baseball. You know, I hadn't talked to him since I grew this ego and I was like, I need to talk to him. So I laid there and I talked to God and I'll never forget this conversation. I said, God, I just want to thank you for this life you've given me. I want to thank you for all the blessings you've bestowed upon me, for the family, for the friends, for everyone you've put into my path. And I know I haven't lived this life the way that I should. And I know I haven't been the best Christian or the best man. And if it's my time to go, God, I want to go with you. I want to go with you. But if you give me a second chance at life, if you give me a second chance to make this right, I promise to live this life to serve you and to serve others. That next next day I woke up, everything was on day 13, everything was declining to the point where my school at the time had a prayer visual. And at that prayer visual, they had almost the entire school at this prayer visual for a freshman. Right. You know, a, a freshman, not, not somebody who's been there for two years, three years. And you'll make a freshman and people were praying for me. And at this prayer visual, I didn't find out about this until, you know, after I had healed up. But at this prayer visual, I find out that people who didn't know God came to God and people who had walked away from God came back to God that night. And it was like they used this moment of what was happening to me because. 
if you ask most of the people around my life, DJ, they will tell you that I was a nice guy, that I was, you know, that they didn't feel the same way that I felt about myself at that moment. And so for them to come back at that time with where I was at was just kind of crazy to me. But then I found out that I was on a corporate prayer chain in several different countries, in several states across the United States, where everybody went to prayer for me at the same time, which is insane. Because again, I'm just one guy. I'm from a small town. I've got 6,500 people that they say we have (laughs) in my my hometown. And I wouldn't even say at that time, I had really good relationships with most of them. You know, it was, it was, it was just insane to me that people were going to bat for me. And I woke up the next day, you know, after, after having my worst numbers, I woke up on day 14. I had no fever. All of the jaundice where my skin was almost the color of Dijon mustard was back to pink. I had an appetite. Even though I was 40 pounds down, I stood up. I was able to walk to the bathroom for the first time by myself. Everything was as normal as you possibly could be. And I will never forget this doctor coming in. He comes in, he goes, son, I'm not going to say that I'm a believer, but I cannot explain what has happened to you. So we have ran every single test on you today to figure out what has made you better. Like what has gotten you here? And this is like, you know, around three, four o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. And we have to let you go home because there is nothing wrong with you. We have no, we have no, no explanation said, I'm not going to say I'm a believer, but there's a miracle that just happened today because your diagnosis is completely gone. And at that moment, I knew that God gave me that second chance. Like I knew he had given me that second chance. And I knew that, you know, my father always taught me growing up is that when you give a man your word or you give anybody your word, you keep it. Yeah. And I gave God my word that night. And so that's where I've, I've kept moving forward to try and impact others and, and serve him in every aspect I can. Has it always been a, a smooth road? Absolutely not. You know, life's a gravel road. It's not a smooth road. There's potholes left and right. They're meant to knock you into the ditch and knock you over. And then, of course, there's smooth turnoffs that, that uh, you know, the devil or anybody, you know, sets forth to distract you from the overall mission. But if you stay the course on the gravel road and keep fighting through the potholes, that's where the beauty comes from, right? That's how we reach the pearly gates. And, you know, after, after that incident, I started reflecting on something that had happened to me um, the summer before my senior year, which was a camp called Camp No Limits had invited me out to be their sports counselor. What Camp No Limits was, was a camp for kids with limb differences and amputees, teach them everyday life skills and do some fun activities with them to get them to try and be confident in their differences, be confident in, in who they are and um, really encourage the kids. And they had seen or read articles on me with being the one-handed pitcher from Southern Illinois um, and said, Hey, we want you to come out and work with these kids. And so I go to this camp and we're wrapped around a fire pit and there's probably I don't know, 10 people. And, 
everybody's talking about who they are, where they come from. And then I ask that everybody throw in what sports they play, because, you know, if I'm going to be a sports counselor, I want to know where these kids are coming from. Yeah. And so it's like, Hey, I'm Timmy. I play soccer. Hey, I'm Billy. I play soccer. Hey, I'm Jimmy. I play soccer. Now, DJ, no offense to anybody who loves the sport of soccer, <laughs> but in my hometown of Ducoin, Illinois, <laughs> soccer is a sin. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and once more, what, what really got, got me was I'm looking at these kids, you know, I had been exposed to every sport other than soccer my entire life. And these kids were only being subjected to one. Mm -hmm. These are five, six year old kids who are telling me that they're only playing one sport. And so it comes to me and I'm like, I'm Sam Cooner. I play baseball, basketball, football, hunt, fish, do weightlifting, track and field. You play soccer? Nah, man, that's a sin in my hometown. (laughs) And I just couldn't shake this thought from my head. Why are these kids only being subjected to one sport? What's going on? And so I got to talking to a mom there. And her son, her son's name was Brett at the time. And I said, I said, why is Brett only being subjected to one sport? He looks like a super athletic kid. What's going on? Well, we're just afraid that if we put Brett out into any other sports that he's going to fail and not have a good time. And we know that if we put him into soccer, he's got a better chance of succeeding because he only needs two feet for soccer. Yeah. And man, that didn't sit well with a 17 year old competitor. Me, <laughs> I was like, I was like, what? You're afraid of failure? You know, failure is part of life. That's how we learn how to succeed. He's going to fail. He's going to fail in soccer. They're going to fail in whatever they do. But for you to not have confidence in your son based off of a difference is holding him back. You're not even giving him the chance to fail. And it was, you know, I was trying to have this conversation and, it wasn't going anywhere. And I, yeah, knew I mean, that's a hard pill to swallow anyway. <laughs> I mean, you're dealing with a parent who has someone who has, you know, has someone who, who may be listen, missing a limb or something and they're just trying to protect them. So I can see where that, you know, be it, you know, something that happens. Exactly. Exactly. And I got, you know, I got to talking to my mom and she, she said the same thing. I said, well, I don't like it. I need you to get these parents away from me. I need you to get them away and just let me have these kids. Give me, give me a few hours with these kids. Let me run them through some real sports. You know, let me, let me show them that they can do multiple things. Mm -hmm. And she said, all right, well, what do you want me to do? I said, I don't know. Your mama, you figure it out. (laughs) So she puts together this like two hour forum of raising a limb, different athlete and doing a Q and a for all the parents and being that support system, being that angel on earth that my mom is. And while she was doing that, I was teaching kids how to throw and catch a baseball, how to do the glove transfer, how to swing a bat, how to throw and catch a football, how to dribble and shoot a basketball, how to swing a golf club, how to pull back a bow, you know, all of these different things that they weren't, they weren't even allowed the opportunity to try. Yeah. And they were accomplishing it DJ in time that was 40, you know, 40 minutes and, and they're ready to feel the line drive, you know, for, 40 minutes and they're shooting a basketball through the hoop. Like they've been shooting it their entire life. Yeah. They're dribbling between their legs. 40 minutes, they're swinging a golf club and hitting the ball and striking it almost perfectly every time. These kids are showing raw God-given ability and talent that was going out of way, going to waste out of this fear of failure. Exactly. And, and it just you know, it didn't sit well with me. And I, after seeing this, man, we, we go, I go back to my dorm. Um, we were staying at like a kind of like a YMCA type place. They had, you know, cabins and stuff like that. It's 110 degrees outside with the heat index. 
no air conditioning in these cabins. None. So, you know, sleep is not happening whatsoever. <laughs> no. And as I laid there in a puddle of sweat on this bed, I hear this voice. You know, people talk about hearing God all the time. And, you know, that when, when you're young, you might be a little skeptical of it. But I hear this voice in my head saying, you can change this. And I'm like laying there for a second. I'm not responding. And I hear it again. You can change this. And then I say, what can I do? I'm 17 years old. I'm a C's gets degrees type student. You know, I'm only in school to play sports. Like, what can I do for these kids? And again, the voice repeats itself. You can change this. This lasted all night long, except for about an hour where I was able to get about an hour of sleep. And I have a baseball game the next day where we have to drive back home to. And I remember getting in my mom's car and we're on, we're on the drive back from Chesterfield, Missouri. So we have about a two hour drive to do coin. I'm sitting there and this vision comes into my head and I have to bring this vision to light. I have to tell my mom about it. So I said, mom, what if we had a camp for kids with limb differences and amputees where they learned mainstream sport from coaches who looked like them? So we're encouraging them to go out and compete against everybody else. And now they have a mentor who has been there at the highest level of this sport. So they have no excuses of why they can't. And she, she says this statement and she's used this statement probably more than any statement I've ever heard her say in her entire life. And she said, I would have driven you across the country on a $10 bill to have gotten you in front of you when you were cut from the baseball team or gotten you in front of you when your coaches told you you weren't going to be able to play college baseball. She's like, I would have done that for you. And immediately we start the process of creating a foundation. Um, we didn't really know what we're doing. You know, my mom's a retired school teacher. I'm a C's get degree student, but we, you know, we start trying to fit, fit together what we need to do to become a 501c3 and become a charity. And we finally become a charity in 2011, later towards my senior end of my senior year. So going into my freshman year, I have this foundation. Now, what I thought this foundation was during the ego time was, okay, let me show all these kids what to do. So I'm going to video myself doing all these videos and then we'll start an online format and that's where we'll start. And then, so when God gave me the second chance at life, again, that vision came in my head of you can change this now go to work. And immediately I'm like, we need to have a camp. We need to have our first camp. It needs to be right here at Greenville university. We need to have this camp. So I called my mom. I said, what can we do to have this camp? She said, well, let's, let's start looking up how to have camps and everything. And so we start, you know, going through the whole process. And I went and met with the athletic director and, and all the coaches and got approval to use the facilities and, you know, all of this. And 19 kids show up to the very first Navability camp in June of 2012. Okay. Had seven coaches who I recruited by literally messaging them on social media, telling them my vision and saying, hey, you going to be a part of this. Seven coaches from all over showed up. And I was like, man, this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. 
this is it. This camp, this one camp, this, this is what God wants me to do. This one camp a year. Tell God your plans if you want to hear him laugh, right? That's that's kind of, yeah. <laughs> that's kind of the process. <laughs> Fast forward to today, GJ, we've held over 40 camps in 14 states. We've served kids from 49 states and 11 countries through our camps. I have a coaching pool of over 120 coaches from all over the country and outside of the country. We've held, we've held sports. Uh, I think we're up to 20. 20 to 21 different sports, whenever you factor in snow sports and fishing and hunting. And we've served over 1,500 limb different youth. Man, that's crazy. Man, I thought it was one camp, right? I thought yeah. that was the goal. God had different plans. And it's been such a blessing because every time I start to get frustrated, anytime I start to get stressed out and wonder, you know, how is this going to go? I remember this saying that my mom uh, told me when I'm growing up to the point where I got it tattooed on my shoulder with my Philippians 413 uh, tattoo. And it's uh, God steers moving ships. So keep moving because if you keep moving, eventually that wind's going to blow and fill, fill your sails. Yeah. And immediately we just keep moving. We keep moving. And then sure enough, here comes a blessing from God and we're, we've got the camp funded. You know, here's a blessing from God. And, you know, it's, we're working, we're working at it. We're working at it. And sometimes it feels like you're running in circles, but he keeps opening door after door, after door, after door. And it's just crazy to watch because at 17 years old, I learned what my purpose was, but I didn't act on it until I was 19. Yeah. Well, it took you almost losing your life to realize, you know, what it is you appreciated and, you know, move from there, which is insane. Exactly. And it's, you know, I hope that not everybody has to go through right. you know, the, that to find their purpose. You know, I know um, others discover it, but man, when you live in your purpose, like you live in your purpose, outside world problems don't really affect you as much. You know, they, they're, they're still, they're still a factor, but you go back to knowing that you're going to be okay. God put you in this position. He didn't put you in a position that you can't overcome. He put you in this position because you were strong enough to take on the challenge. Yeah. And that, and that's the way to look at everything. You know, everybody looks at ad adversity, like I said, like a wall when it should be looked at as steps, you know, you have to keep climbing those steps because which direction is heaven DJ. <laughs> it's up. How do you go up if the escalator is not working? Exactly. You got you, <laughs> you got to walk. <laughs> exactly. You got to walk. You got to climb. You got to do whatever you can to get there. And that's that's what those failures are meant to do. They're meant to learn from, grow, continue to grow, continue to grow. You know, yeah. I look I look at every single day of my life and I evaluate at the end of the day. And what I like to do is find one aspect in which I can be better the next day. If I can be better the next day, every single day for 365 days, there's 365 steps I took to better myself. I mean, hey, look, <laughs> I'm still trying to process all this, man. I had no idea. So this is absolutely amazing. Um, and, you know, just the entire journey of getting there is something that most people, you know, they just don't there's there's no credit there typically because people just see someone's achievements and they don't see the journey. They don't talk about it. They don't understand the hardships. They don't. 
like you, you, all the failure, you're always failing, you know, forward, right? If you're exactly. doing it correctly. What I what I do want to ask about is like we you I heard you mention it nonchalantly a few times in com, you know in the story is the bullying aspect of it because this is something that's huge to anyone who has any type of disability or anything you know or any mm-hmm. any type of difference you know like my question is you so you're a big fella like you were bullied so tell me <laughs> about it if you don't mind because this is something that's powerful and it's something that we're dealing with that you know we we've we've been taken back you know with all the adversity and what's been going on the past few years of, you know, mm-hmm. what most people haven't seen, you know, that are coming up, but bullying is something that's a huge problem, you yeah. know, and it used to be just physically and now it's emotionally. And, you know, like, so what's your take on that and tell me any, you know, any stories or anything that may like reflect on that if you want to, if you feel comfortable doing so. No, absolutely, man. So I was bullied for 14 years. Uh, so from the time I was four to the time I was 18, um, there was at least one instance of bullying, throughout those years. Yeah. Um, it was always mentally. Cause like you said, I was, I'm, I'm a bigger You're guy. Big fella, was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah so, so, so it, it was, no, it was never the physical type bully. And it was, it was always the, the emotional, the mental. Um, and you know, at my, at my younger age, you know, yeah, I would go home and cry. But my mom would read scripture to me and, and really comfort me and knowing that, you know, God created me in his image, you know, he's created all of us differently and our differences are what, not what defines us. You know, they're just what people attach to. And uh, immediately, you know, growing up into middle school is when, you know, you start dating girls and, you know, yeah. start, start, um, you know, becoming a, becoming a young man. Yeah. And uh, so I started, you know, I started um, exploring that world and, you know, I had, I had a different girlfriend, probably every every two, every three weeks, you know, there, and each one I loved with all my yeah, heart, you know, <laughs> and, uh, I'll never forget going into, into seventh grade. Um, there was this girl and, uh, you know, I, I, I really liked her and, um, she really liked me and, and, you know, we started dating and then we, you know, we broke up after I think two months, which is, you know, that's a long time for a middle school relationship. Yeah, that's a thing, man. Y'all were, <laughs> might as well got married. Shoot. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you know, one, it was her birthday and I didn't know what to get her. So I gave her, you know, like 50 bucks, like to go get her something. Right. Which is, that's a huge amount of money yeah. for a middle schooler. And, uh, I remember, there was a group of guys who were, uh, they were the skater boys, right? One of them was about my height and he was a, he's a big guy. Uh, I was six, two in seventh grade. He was about six, two, six, three in seventh grade. Um, and he was a little bit bigger, but he ran with a group, you know, there was like three or four of them. And over my shoulder, I kept hearing, you know, he's paying her to date him. He's paying her. He that's the only way that any, anybody would ever date this guy paying her, paying her. Right. And, uh, this, this is continuing throughout the year. And then this other girl come, you know, this other girl comes to my mind. I was talking to my friend in class in seventh grade. And, and I said, you know, do you think this girl would like me? Do you think, you know, I have a chance, you know, just talking with the boys. Yeah. Right. And uh, no way that all of a sudden I hear over my shoulder, no way they'd like you. You're a freak. You got one hand. There's no way. Right. And so I'm just letting this go. Right. I'm just continuing to let this go. Well, this is continuing for month after month after month. And, this starts in the fall and we get to the spring and they mentioned something and I don't even remember exactly what they said, but I snapped. It's almost like they lit the fuse back in the fall and it was time in the spring. And I immediately, 
it got violent. I, you know, I, I pushed, I pushed, uh, the, the big boy into the wall and let him have it. And then let, you know, got, got the other little guys around and let them have it. Like I was an unstoppable wrecking ball. You weren't stopping me. Right. Teacher comes out. I'm already filled with emotions. So I just come, become overcome. They send me to the principal's office. They take, you know, they go through everything. You, you're going to have in school suspension, all this, everything else. Uh, this is before, thankfully, when cops are called to the school, whenever you make kids nosebleed. Yeah. Um, and so after the, after that, the principal, like, you know, knocks the other boys out, puts me back in, calls my teacher in. My teacher happened to be my babysitter when I was a kid because she was one of my mom's students. And she comes in, they shut the door and they go, how long has this been going on? Um, I was like, what, what do you mean? You know, how long have they been bullying you? And I told them, and they're like, why didn't you say anything? Like, because, you know, as young men, we're taught to never show emotion. We're taught to never, you know, let anybody get under our skin. You know, we're taught to handle our problems ourselves. And I think that goes for every generation now. I think that's men in general. You know, we're not taught to talk to anybody. We're taught to hold it in and fight through it. And the teacher looks at me and goes, had you told me this in the fall, I would have stopped it in the fall. And you know, I was already feeling bad that I had even hurt these guys. Like I, you know, I'm not, I wasn't, wasn't somebody to hurt anybody. And, uh, immediately I got to thinking, you know, I could have avoided this by just saying something. Yeah. And it, it didn't sit well with me that that was how I acted. And immediately, you know, when I got home that night, you know, I looked in the mirror and I said, are you happy with yourself? And I didn't mean like, you know, are you happy that you just beat up these kids? Are you happy with yourself? Are you happy with what you're looking at right now? And I, I remember looking at myself saying, you know, nothing's going to change. You know, my hand's not going to grow tomorrow. Nothing's going to change. Why are these people in, you know, why are they impacting me? You know, why, what, what, is, what is causing me to get angry about this? And then I realized that I wasn't comfortable with myself. Yeah. And I remember looking in the mirror and said, you need to get comfortable with yourself. You need to own your difference. You need to take away the target. The target that they've put on you is because you're not comfortable with yourself. If you show you're comfortable and you don't react and, and you let everything go because it really doesn't impact you and you own who you are, they can't, they can't affect you. The only person who can make this affected is you. And I remember having this conversation, like I had the mirrors, uh, kind of like the folding mirror, like the folding mirror cabinets and I had them all open. So I'm like talking to like 30 of me. Right. And, uh, man, Ever since that day, I've just owned it. I show my nub in public. I walk, you know, I walk with it. You know, I don't, I don't hide it from anybody. Uh, I'm not, I'm not afraid of what people say. Um, and that's, that's kind of, that's the mentality that I've taken to nub ability. You know, I, I went, when I went out and recruited my coaches, I recruited coaches who were confident. Yeah. I re- recruited coaches who owned their differences because I'm like, if these kids are going to look up to you, I want them to look up to someone who is confident in their difference so that they can be confident in their difference. Because here's the thing. If you own your difference, it doesn't mean you're going to go on to play college sports, but you could go on and cure cancer. Yeah. You, you, you could go on and become an amazing heart surgeon and save people's lives. You could come become an EMT and save people's lives. Despite people always saying that you're not going to be capable of it. You know, you can go out and prove everybody wrong because you believe in yourself and you have the confidence in yourself that you can do it. And that's, that's huge. And the biggest thing you can do to remove the target from a bully 
is to accept yourself, yeah. accept yourself fully. And that's not just looking yourself in the mirror and saying, I accept myself. That's proving that you've accepted yourself. You know, that, and, and what I, what I like to say is accepting yourself. You have to practice it. You know, you have to look in the mirror, tell yourself self, self affirmations. You have to look at, at your growth, look at how you're getting better each day and use those as an overall encompassing way of showing how you're, how you're progressing, how you've accepted yourself. It's not easy, man. It's not an easy thing to do. There's people out there who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s who haven't accepted themselves, yeah. right? It's a commitment. It's just like anything else. You get out of it what you put into it. You know, you can't, you can't go to the gym one day and have a six pack the next, right? No, it don't work that way. <laughs> exactly. You got to keep showing up and you got to well, show up through the hurt. Yeah. It's just like what, I mean, what they say, like, you know, never expose your weaknesses. Well, that's still something where you're insecure, right? Like exactly. Until you, own, until you own yourself and, you know, you are, you know, basically honest with yourself and say, this is who I am. I'm comfortable with it. You're, you're always going to show your weakness. Right? Exactly. Exactly. But it's just something that, you know, we, we were told as, as human beings is, you know, I mean, I feel like we're just like, don't expose emotion, especially young men. Right. right. You know, it's just something right. you're, you're, you're taught at a young age, never expose emotion. Right. And you, and you used a great word there. You used weakness. Yeah. And that's what, and that's what everybody sees it as, right. It's a right. weakness. Right. That's why it's a difference. Yeah. It's, it's a difference. You know, we, we're all different mentally. We're all different physically. We all have different traits. Those don't define us. What defines us is how we move forward, yeah. how we, you know, how, how we want to see ourselves is what will define us in other people's eyes. Yeah. And I completely agree. Have you had anyone, I know you are doing this camp for, you know, children, but have you ha had anyone who, you know, just by hearing, you know, what you're doing or, and let's plug your book too, where, you know, or reading your book, um, who've come out, who have been adults who, who never really had the opportunity to take advantage of, you know, you know, being involved, but now have come to you and talked to you, you know, and said, Hey man, you, you've done something here, <laughs> you know, ignited the fuse per se. Man, all the time. Yeah. That's, and, awesome. that's and, great to and, hear because like, and, you, you know, you can't catch everyone, you know what I mean? Like, it's exactly. like one of those things where, you know, if, if you could catch them, no matter, you know, how old they are, if catching them, you know, no matter what state they're in, you know, and saying, Hey, look, you can, you can do something here all the time. And it's, it's one of the most humbling things, but you know, the reason I wrote my book just, you know, was, uh, to get the story out that God gave me. It's not my story. It doesn't belong to me. I didn't, you know, I didn't write this book to make money. I didn't write this book to do anything other than to allow people to use the story God gave me to impact their own lives. Yeah. And what I told my mom was after, you know, after I invested lots of money into the, into the book was if this changes one life, it was worth every penny. And I've been blown away by how many people have reached out to me and said, I can't tell you how much this means to me to read this book. I can't tell you what this has done for my son, my daughter, um, Christians, atheists, Hindus, Buddhists, you know, people reading my book, even though that there's Christian values in here, this is not a Christian book. This is a book that is encompassing of everybody. This is a book to show everybody the impact that they can make once they choose to accept that they can do it. Yeah. You know, the impact that you can make when you truly own your difference and, and move forward. You know, like, like I've said a thousand times, I'm from a 6,500 
three stoplight town. And again, 6,500 with quotation marks, <laughs> uh, three stoplight town in Southern Illinois, not the richest place in the world. You know, we were factory workers, blue collar workers, the majority of them. And I've made an impact that has been seen across the world simply because God put me in the position. He brought the resources. He brought the people. And because I kept moving, I never stopped. You know, you got to keep moving. And that's what I, if anybody takes one thing away from this podcast, DJ, it's keep moving. You know, you, you don't reach anything by standing still. You don't reach anything by being complacent. You don't, you don't reach anything by laying there and wondering what you can do to be better. Go do it. Go try different avenues. Find a way. Fail, 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 fail. Right. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, I know Kobe Bryant is a, a huge athlete of, of, of our, of our generation. Right. Look how many shots he took versus how many points he made. Exactly. He missed the most shots in NBA history, and yet he's a legend. And it, I should it, say anything about failing. Yeah, it's the most. But here's the thing, and we talk about it, you know. And I, and like you said earlier, if one person you know reads your book and gets something from it, if one person hears your story and gets something from it, that's what made this podcast, man. I don't make any money off this. This is a passion project, right? But like it started, I was going to build my business off the back of it, and it started being something different. I was like, well, you know what? Someone kept like a random person would come hit hit me up here and there and like, look, you're doing something here. Don't stop. Keep doing it. And I'm like, OK, if one person listens to this and gets something out of it, then it's worth my time doing it. But the, the thing that is so cliche, like you can you can say those things all day long, but some people it just takes that nudge. You know what I mean? And you got to yeah. figure out, you know, what that what that is, you know, or figure out what that, you know, figure it is. What a lot of people go through their entire life without taking a chance because they're afraid to fail. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's heartbreaking, right? You think about someone who's in a nursing home on their deathbed and regretting all the things they never did because they didn't take a chance. Like, I don't want anyone to go through that. You know, I, do, I don't want that for anyone, man. Like right. it just, it's, that's the screw a horror film. That's horror film to me, you know, sitting yeah. in, in a nursing home and just talking to someone saying, I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have done that, man. We, you can do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Everybody is capable. The only, this, this is one of my favorite quotes. Um, I don't know if I came up with it or who came up with it. You know, I don't know where it originated, but the only disability in life is a disabled mind. I completely agree. You know, I have seen people who are completely paralyzed, change the world. Yeah. You know, I, I, I have seen people who, are seen to be, you know, mentally different, change the world. The impact that you can make is far greater than you could ever imagine. That's every single person in their life comes across probably hundreds of thousands of people throughout their life. Yeah. If they impact one person, that person impacts one person. That person impacts one person, which obviously, you know, that's going to spread out even more than that. Of course, you can make a worldly impact just by continuing to push forward and invest in the other the lives of others. Yeah, I completely agree, man. I mean, th today, I, honestly, I do minimal research on people 
because I want this to be so substance filled that it's like almost a surprise me not knowing because it's just like meeting you in person, right? You know, doing right. these Zoom shows, you know, a lot of times I'm not, we're not able to get in the studio if you're across the states and uh, I'm a one man shop over here. So I'm like, well, I want to connect with these people. So I do uh, just enough research to know who you are, but I didn't know the, you know, the impactful, the impact that your story had. And I was just like, man. So I'm just taking it. I'm still taking it all in right now. And I know everyone else is listening, but uh, let's plug the plug your book real quick. Absolutely. So uh, I wrote this book. It's called Game Changer, How to Thrive When Life Doesn't Go According to Plan. Uh, man, it's, it's, it's literally about uh, being put in the position to understand that God can use anybody. You know, you can, anybody can make this worldly impact just by choosing to move forward and, and believing in themselves. You know, for, for me, it took, it took, you know, a life, a life altering diagnosis to get me there and other people, will, you know, it, it will take time. It, it, you don't know when it's going to come, but what I can tell you is once you find your purpose, push forward through it, don't stop. Don't look for, don't look for the easy outs. Don't look for the turnoffs on that gravel road of life. You know, keep pushing forward, fight through the potholes, stay the course. You can't go wrong, man. I love it. And so your organization, Nubability Athletics, um, anyone can find that online, Nubability on any social uh, media platform, as well as Nubability.com. Oh, dot, um, dot org. Dot org. org. Excuse me. I'm sorry. I, I, I don't think we own dot com anymore. No. Okay. <laughs> dot org. Well, I mean, you're a nonprofit. So it should be yeah, exactly. Excuse me. But yeah. So, um, yeah, man, any last words or anything? I mean, this has been amazing today. And honestly, we could keep going for hours, but we're going to have to cut it off here in a second. Man, I, I really appreciate you having me. I'm going to leave you guys with a quote. Okay. Every single person in this life has a million of excuses why they can't do something. But it's the great ones, the ones that choose to rise up that listen to none of them. I love it. Awesome, man. Sam Kunert, so nice to meet you, bro. I appreciate your time. Everyone, please subscribe to this podcast. DJ, thank you. Guys, go listen to Frequency Interrupted. Thanks, man.